And so I paid my money, signed the form, and that's really how that's that's as simple as it is. That's as simple as that's how I got involved. And and that's really stay-at-home moms. You know, moms in general are very targeted for MLMs because we're already used to our unpaid labor being exploited, um, and so we tend to be vulnerable to these schemes. Working in an MLM showed me how I was complicit in these systems that harm women. Welcome to The Models We Live By, the podcast that explores how overcoming the mental models we all hold on to can help us grow to become better humans. Hey, Emily, how are you doing? I am well. And yourself? I am doing pretty good. I just told you before the podcast started, they are taking down a dead tree next to my office. So I am inside my closet right now. It's a little bit of warm here, um, but I kind of I kind of could see this becoming my studio. This is awesome. <laughs> I, I've actually done a lot of podcasts with hosts who are in closets. It's it's like it's a thing. Yeah. <laughs> How has your day been so far? It's been good. Kids are off to school. I'm alone in my office. Can't complain. That that sounds great. I cannot remember the last time I was alone in my office. Um, so who in the world are you? Because we just started this episode talking as if we are besties, but I just met you and you saw me as a part of a big group. So can you tell me a little bit about who Emily is? And I throw in this sneaky question every now and then about what is your purpose as well. So if you feel called, can you also tell me what you think your purpose is? Okay, so I am Emily Lynn Paulson, and I am a mom of five. Um, so nice. I wrote a book in 2019. Is that the right year? Yeah, um, detailing my my recovery store, story, a recovery memoir. And mm -hmm. then I the pandemic happened, and from that experience, I, there were other moms who reached out who needed help. So I started this group called the Sober Mom Squad. And so that group is still alive and well, there's meetings, all that stuff. So I'm kind of the, you know, heartbeat behind that, I guess. Um, and I wrote a book uh, detailing my escape from the MLM industry, which we'll talk about a little bit more. Um, and now I'm uh, just trying to figure out what's next. I'm writing a fiction book next. Um, and my purpose, I don't, gosh, I, I like to think that I help other people reveal the stories that they're scared to share. And I, I that's what I hope to do through my writing is to talk about the things that are unpopular to talk about and um, and be okay with it. You know, the whole like secrets make you sick. But that, anyway, that's how we met was in with my publisher, Row House. Um, they invited authors to ask questions, answer questions. And that's how we met. I feel so fortunate that you were willing to come on on the podcast. So quickly about that purpose, let me ask a clarifying question. Do you want to do that the, to help people find words for their stories that they're afraid to share to you? You're saying you're doing that through story work. Is that 
specifically only through story work or do you also have consulting in mind or so? You know, through my story work, but in, you know, Sober Mom Squad, we do run meetings and and that's a big part of recovery is, uh, you know, sharing out loud when you're ready, you know, when you're ready to recover out loud, right? So really having taken away that stigma of, of, you know, that the labels of addict and alcoholic or whatever it is, all of those, those very things that hold a lot of shame and stigma and embracing them and recovering out loud. And, and I think through that experience, you know, my recovery allowed me to then tell this other story of other things going on in my life. So I like that a lot. I, I actually have a personal belief that story work could be a great way forward within consulting. I've done a lot of management consulting in the past. Yes, exactly. It's great to just prescribe. But I feel like a lot of companies already have the answers. So I can only imagine that it's the same within your work, that people have those answers with within them and that sharing stories and hearing other people's stories can be very healing in that case. Yeah, definitely. That is That is very awesome. Yeah, I just realized a couple of months ago, so July 2023 is when I've been clean for 20 years. Oh my so, gosh. Congratulations. <laughs> wow. Yes, yes, yes. So I was in rehab uh, after I had a big epiphany in my life. I'm like, wow. I remember as clear as day. Is that the English expression? As clear as day. I was sitting next to my neighbor and we were high as every day. And we were playing a Wu-Tang Clan fighting game on the PlayStation or so. I have no clue why that memory is still stuck in me. But anyway, that's what we were playing. And I just stared at him and he's like, why are you staring at me? And I was so blunt. I'm like, you have a master's in child development. You are super smart. Everybody is looking up to you. But you work in a plastic factory and you play Wu-Tang Clan fighting game while being high on the couch with me every single day. He was seven years older than me. So I went my first round of recovery was 21. So that's uh, four, 22 years ago, uh, tw 20 years ago. Wow, I I made myself older there. That's 20, <laughs> that is 20 years ago, but I was definitely one of those moments that I look back and like, that was the moment. Like, I don't, I don't want this. I love this guy, but I don't want to be 28 at that moment. I thought that was super old. <laughs> now I think, oh, the younglings, but yes. So how does that, what is the Sober Mom Squad exactly? Yeah, so it's a online community, essentially. You know, during the pandemic, obviously, lots of in-person meetings were shuttered and there wasn't a quick transition to online. And the other thing that was happening was there was a really big contingent of women, moms, who were home and they were drinking more than ever. Or people who thought, you know, hey, I thought I was a social drinker, but now I'm home all the time. I'm drinking all the time and my kids are home. So it was this wave of like, I wouldn't say it was sober curiosity, but almost like reckoning that alcohol was taking up more space than, than women wanted it to. And I feel like it's something that, you know, there was a very long period of time before I was that like rock bottom person that I questioned it. And, and so the Sober Mom Squad is really a place where you can go, you can get on a meeting, you can connect with women near you, um, you can be a fly on the wall if you want to, but it's, it's such an easier 
you know, I think that hundred pound door of AA, it can be such a barrier of entry, especially if you don't fit all the criteria, you know, if you're like, oh, I'm just drinking more than I want to. So that's really what the sober mom squad is. It's like taking away any sort of labels. If you want to make alcohol less significant in your life, like come, come chat with us. Yeah. yeah I like that approach a lot. You're right. My first approach with, uh, with rehabs were all faith-based rehab. And then it was really hard for me to like separate, like, are you trying to proselytize me or so right now? Feel like some faith spaces make it a little bit more complex for, for, for. Yeah. And I started in AA and I recommend AA. Like it's, I say I credit it to saving my life. And at that time, like I, I got there when I needed it. Um, but the reason I don't um, attend anymore is that I didn't like um, I didn't like the thought that if I didn't keep going, I was going to relapse, right? Like stay in the room, stay in the room, stay in the rooms. Um, and that, that just didn't resonate to, with me. Like I got to the point where alcohol had no benefit in my life um, and I didn't need to sit in a chair to, to tell me that. Like I, I needed that for a long time, but I... So just the idea that you ha you have to do things a certain way or you're going to fail, um, I don't love that. So again, I'm not, I'm definitely not anti AA. I'm just you got to find what works for you and what whatever works for you. Like take take what works, leave the rest, that whole thing. I agree with that because for me it was very important to have that initial break with drugs, but after I I ran away <laughs> from the rehab. Uh, but I didn't continue drug usage. Uh, I needed to work on my mental health in my case. So I went into an intensive inpatient uh, treatment facility where I continued to not use drugs. So there was that. It kind of worked out. Everybody has yeah. their own journey, right? Yeah. Yeah. You got to find what works for you. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. So you also said that you wrote a book. I mean, the reason why I met you is you shared a little bit about your author journey as aspiring authors. We are always ready to learn from other people, but I'm uh, very, very interested in that MLM part. I said a little bit before the podcast, I think I only know Tupperware parties, um, and uh, before watch, uh, before having this conversation with you, I, I did some research and uh, I watched the John Oliver show on MLM <laughs> just to catch me up and like, oh my, everything. This is a for real thing. I don't know how prevalent it is in the Netherlands, probably as prevalent, but I have no clue. But can you explain to those of us who have no clue what MLM is, what it exactly is and why we should probably run away from it. Yeah. So you're not wrong in the fact that it is a very American thing. Oh, so okay. being raised in the Netherlands, it probably wasn't around. It wasn't a, a thing. It's really not a thing in Europe, um, particularly because Europe has stronger protections, consumer protection, you know, laws and whatnot. Um, so it's a very American thing. But MLM, so it, it stands for multi-level marketing. And it's different from sales in the sense that, you know, you go to a store, you go to Sephora, you buy your mascara, you come home, you know, Sephora gets the money and then the manufacturer of the mascara gets money and like the little lady 
behind the glass counter might get a commission or something. And it's like, that's it. That's the, the flow of dollars. In multi-level marketing, you know, you are an independent contractor. So you're not an employee. You don't have any protections or rights or any like guaranteed salary. You pay to become an independent contractor. So it's a pay-to-play pay system. You join an upline. So you join another independent contractor who has joined an independent contractor who's joined an independent contractor. So it's this pyramid of people. The money always goes up the chain. So the products are really overpriced. So the people who make money in MLM are the people at the top of corporate. And then the very few people at the top of the pyramid who have large downlines. So are there some people who make money? A few. The corporations make money. Heck yeah, the corporations make money. But 99.7% of people who join lose money. There's so many people involved that only a few people can actually make money. So that's why they're they're harmful. That's why they're predatory. Typically, it's a friend or family member getting you involved. Um, that's what they are. And they there's lots of them. There's um, you know Tupperware, like you said. There's Mary Kay, Avon, uh, Beachbody. I mean, they're all over. And some people ask, like, well, gosh, if they're bad, why do companies? Why are companies MLMs if they're so bad? Because the company makes a lot of money because people pay to join. Like it's money. That's why. Yeah. Sheesh. So you pay upfront. I'm wrapping my head around it because I've read a little bit about it, but you know, I'm wrapping my head around it so so. You you I mean, somebody approached me years ago. I think it was MLM. It was like groceries, online groceries. Like you shop anyway, right? So you can buy from your own store. And you just set up an online store, but all you have to do is put in, I don't know, it was a couple of grand. I'm like, literally, I don't have a couple of grand. That was my excuse then. Like, I literally don't even have a couple of hundred bucks. So, (laughs) okay. So how did you get involved with it? Yeah. So I was home with my kids. I've got five kids. I had been out of the workforce for a really long time, raising my kids, and when we were done, I really like craved something. I, I was in this place where, you know, again, I was drinking a lot. I was trying to escape like my loneliness, my stress, my whatever. And really it's because, you know, our country's not set up to support moms, right? It's not set up to help us in any way. Our mental load is just overwhelming. And so I was looking for anything. And I, I, I saw, you know, I had a friend who invited me out for wine. And she was meeting people who were in this company with her. And it was like everything I I thought I wanted. It was like friendship, possible income. The products looked cool. So I kind of joined without much thought. It was really the hope of, gosh, maybe this could be the answer I'm looking for. And so I paid my money, signed the form, and... That's really how, that's, that's as simple as it is. That's as simple as, that's how I got involved. And, the, and that's really, uh, stay-at-home moms, you know, moms in general are very targeted for MLMs because we're already used to our unpaid labor being exploited. Um, and so we tend to be vulnerable to these schemes. Working in an MLM showed me how I was complicit in these systems that harm women. You you made it pretty far in there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you do? You, are you comfortable sharing a little bit more about that? 
Yeah. So I, uh, you know, the, the way I got involved was I, I was really like the first person in my area who had, you know, joined this particular company and I had, you know, I had money, I had a, a spouse with an income. And so I had money to spend. I also had a network of women with money to spend. And so I was set up really to succeed. Um, even though the odds were, are very stacked against people, just, you know, kind of dumb luck also that I grew very quickly and I started making money very quickly. Um, I assumed because this is what I was told was that because I was working hard, that's why I was making it right. The pull yourself up by the bootstraps meritocracy. Right. And I preached that. So I spread that message that it was up to you. It's, it's your hard work. I did it. You can do it too, which is so not true. So I was complicit in spreading that lie of meritocracy, the lie of, you know, capitalism really. Um, and, and really believed, I, I believed just like the sky is blue that if I did it, you can do it too, because X, Y, Z, that's what I did. X, Y, Z, that's what you can do. Um, but unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. You know, I had already tapped my entire network and, you know, everything was saturated by the time I, I got there, right? And, you know, there's a lot of internalized misogyny. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of rhetoric around like girl boss and empowerment. And I thought I was joining something that was empowering to women. Because it was like, oh, all these women are their own bosses. They're, they have their own businesses. Well, not really. They all are independent contractors spending money filling a CEO's pockets who's a white man. So MLMs totally uphold the patriarchy. They uphold white supremacy. So I, as a rep, as someone who was promoting this, was upholding all of those systems. And that was a hard thing to reckon with once I realized it. Yes, something we talk a lot about in this podcast is to sit in that discomfort and instead of defending against it, having, okay, fuck, I think I got to take a, <laughs> a step back and listen to my internal compass, listen to the people around me. So how was that for you? What made you realize? Because if I understand correctly, you were one of those few people that actually did make money. Yeah. So part of that was getting sober. You know, during this process, I was drinking a lot halfway through my reign in the MLM, I got sober. And at that point, I realized there were a lot of things I was doing that I couldn't do anymore because my intuition was coming back online. So all of those feelings like, Ooh, I don't want to cold message this person. I don't want to send that script. I don't want to say this. I don't want to do that. I couldn't do those things anymore. And I also started realizing that the people who I believed just weren't working hard enough because I figured they couldn't be if they weren't succeeding, I realized they were. I realized they were doing all the things they were supposed to be doing and that the odds were stacked against everybody. And every year it was the same people at the top. It never, nobody else ever rose up because they couldn't. And it was realizing that and just getting so sick of my own bullshit, honestly, um, and I had to fully leave, you know, I had to completely sever ties, which was hard. It was very hard. I mean, financially is one thing, but you know, I had, a, I had built a lot of relationships in, in that organization. Um, and then I went a step further by speaking about it and writing a book about it. Um, because I really, 
I, I truly believe like I was so loud <laughs> in trying to recruit people into this company, into this model, into something that's a failing system, that's a flawed system that I needed to be just as loud on the other side, um, telling people why they should not do those things. No, I, I see so many, so many parallels with other sectors as, as well. Um, so many parallels, for example, with my, <clears throat> with my coming out story as a trans woman about internalizing transphobia, being pretty loud about, okay, this is how life works. So it is interesting that it seeps into so many aspects of our culture, but they're all the same thing. They're still... What's that Victoria's Secret song? It's this white guy in Ohio. I don't know if you have ever heard that song. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm like, oh, fuck, that is pretty toxic. That is not just, not just, and I'm, am I ruining relationships and friendships and, you know, other people's livelihood, but I'm, in, I'm enriching the person that has blood on, on his hands. That's not an easy thing to say to yourself. So, so can you, are you comfortable describing that, that, that moment you, you're saying you're sober, you're, you're like, oh, I was loud. I got to do something and I'm going to speak out about it. But, but how did you found, find the courage to say, okay, no, let's do a 180. So I tried at first, you know, once I realized I was complicit in this system, I tried kind of just doing what I think most people do is turning their back on it. Right. <laughs> So like I turned off my website, I stopped posting about it. I'm like, I'm just going to ignore this. I'm not going to associate with it anymore and it'll go away. Eventually my paycheck will dry up and it'll go away. And I still saw things happening. And then the pandemic started happening and I saw so much blatant misinformation. I saw racism. I saw it, lots of internalized misogyny. I saw just the rhetoric around you know, anti-humane policies amongst people who who weren't co-opting their own beliefs. They were just co-opting the beliefs of their upline. And it was so scary to me that I, it wasn't that I was trying to separate myself. And I, what I had to do was recognize that I was that person. Even if I didn't say the things, didn't believe the things, I was identifying as a person who did that by, by being involved. I was still complicit. And so I had to share the things I had seen, I had done, I had said, and the people I promoted, because that's why, you know, like a cis, straight, thin, white person can get away with so much shit. Like that's why, you know, I'm the one who needed to talk about it. And, and honestly, I got a lot of pushback from, of course, white people uh, for using supremacy in the title of my book. Because that's so like, oh, you know, oh, you know, pearl clutching and, and recognizing that we are, that's what we're in. We're, it's the sea we're swimming in. We are, as long as we are here, we are in that world. And so what do we do with that? You know, I don't pretend to be uh, the person who does everything perfectly, um, but I knew I had a duty to, to admit to the things I did to uphold those dangerous systems. I had to. So I wouldn't say it wasn't something I woke up one day and I'm just like, yep, I'm going to do this. It, it took time. Um, 
but rec- but reconciling the fact that I'm not, I, I couldn't other myself. I couldn't be like, well, I'm the good MLM person. It's like, no, I am here and I need to talk about it. I That's super brave. And I'm so sorry for the hate that you've gone through because of that. That sounds horrible, horrible. Let me definitely put that out there. Again, the parallels come, come in so hard. When I stepped down as a worship pastor of a pretty big church in the Pacific Northwest. Um, first, I just was like, okay, I'm done. I'm just going to say nothing anymore. And I came out and I saw the systems of oppression in churches and how I benefited from people viewing me as white instead of an Indonesian woman, from people viewing me as a man instead of a woman, from people viewing me as, um, like, they, they didn't even view me as queer they never asked me the question if I was queer. They just assumed, oh, you're at that moment I was a man married to a woman. So they just assumed, oh, you're you're straight. It is so easy, exactly like you said, you turn off your website and hoped it all went away. And then you're realizing, ah, why is this discomfort not leaving me? Because we participated in in the way uh it, we participated in these oppressions. And it's not a fun thing to say out loud. I do believe that the only way to move forward for for any any person, there's there's probably parallels anywhere with what you the story that you're telling and listeners of this podcast right now. And I think that first step of just acknowledging, okay, I was not just a participant. I actively promoted it. So now I need to at least do <laughs> the least that we can do is the due diligence to actively depromote it. It's hard. And I think there's this belief we're very black and white. Like I think people in general, but like Americans, right? It's like you're Democrat or you're Republican, you're this, you're that, you're straight, you're gay, you're like it's, everything is binary. And there's so much gray area. And, and I think one thing that's un- discomforting is once I got to that point where I'm like, I'm in this harmful system, it's the but. Like, but this was good, <laughs> you know, but this was fun. And I'm sure like in your church community, did you meet wonderful people? Did you have wonderful experiences? Of course. And it's not but, it's and. So yeah. being able to recognize the humanity and everybody even and not say oh it's those people it's those demon those horrible people you know the people outside the the abortion clinics or whatever they're bad people like you have to recognize the humanity in people in order to for them to even be open to hearing what you have to say when you've been on that same side reminds me of this episode of vice news or vice news today that i that i watched no it was a vice weekly episode about qAnon and uh, there's this guy that was out. And the reporter was like, how did you get out? He's like, well, I was in my head already out a year before I moved away. But it was all this identity correlated with it. So the fact that I had embarrassment to tell my friends, hey, you know how I was so strong about QAnon? Maybe I was a little bit too... I did not dare to do that. Or... It was my community. They were my people. How can I just walk away from that? And then the reporter, I just remember it so well. The reporter asked, so how did you how did you get out? And he said, my friends treated me as a human. So I love what you say there. My friends allowed me to tell them, hey, y'all, 
I may not have been right. And they didn't completely obliterate me. They said, you still matter. And I love, I love that part so much. I think there's a lot of talk. There's a lot of therapizing on social media, right? About like boundaries and cut people out of your life and whatever. And I, I can't say that I totally agree with that. I think you can keep people at an arm's distance and not necessarily have contact with them and still be a soft place to land when and if they come out of that, you know, whatever it is, whether it's an MLM or it's a hate group or QAnon or whatever, like you can still be that person when they exit because they, because they might. And, and I think that's really important that we don't just sever ties everywhere we go. Cause then, then you're creating the same like cult-like community that you had when you were in the religious organization or the MLM or whatever. Um, there's so much more nuance than we want to admit all the time. No, absolutely. In my, in my field and the listeners of the podcast know that I call that neo-fundamentalism, where we are so hardcore against fundamentalism in, within churches and Christianity that we kind of become a new version of that. It's like, no, you can only be a liberal or a progressive Christian if you ascribe to these doctrines, but kind of sound exactly the same as conservatives right now. And you're so right. That polarization is driving me nuts. Uh, that was the biggest culture shock for the record. Uh, if you're wondering, moving from the Netherlands to America and saying, wait, why are there no 16 political parties like the Netherlands? I'm not saying that that's a great system, but it, it's not. It, they moved towards more polarization as well because the entire world looks at America. Let's let's start there. So it's been a while since I lived there, 11 years. But on, on the other hand, it is super polarizing here. And that's the exact movement that I'm so, so um, passionately fighting against right now where things always have to make sense versus, hey, exactly what you say. It's not or, it's and. And that end part I call ambiguity. Sit in that discomfort. Sit in that ambiguity. I'm like, oh, wow. Oh, wow. I made money. I had relationships. I felt so validated. But I also did terrible things. Can they both be true? Yes. Yes, they can both be true. Now what? Which, because we sit in that ambiguity, we, give, we allow ourselves to wrestle with those ambivalent feelings, you know? And I think if we're we're pro anything and against anything, again, it leaves no room for those thoughts to come together. And I, I honestly think that's by the design in the United States. If like we're so busy arguing about issues, we're never going to spend any money to fix them. So you know, it's 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 distracting. It's just a big distraction. In in theology, again, whenever we have conversations, I'm liberal, so I take everything with a grain of salt. So, but that being said, whenever I'm invited in those conversations, I always, I cannot help but say, say I was Satan, say I believed in Satan. Would I make people gay or would I distract the world from what's actually important? What would my multi-millennial uh, campaign be? I, I'd say one is more effective than the other, right? So it is very concerning that we are so distracted with, with things that, and we make so many things one issue uh, policies or, or whatever, right? I, I every now and then get, get to meet a person right now in churches. The big conversation in churches is um, 
should we uh, what what kind of worship should we have or what kind of pastor should we have or are we affirming enough specifically in in my field in my work people ask me to talk about okay how can we be m- more affirming but but the problem that i often encounter is exactly that that distraction of like it is definitely not enough to have a rainbow flag outside your church if i come in and you still hurt me that rainbow flag did nothing your system is oppressive it's not it's not your church necessarily you are built on a foundation that is serving the people in power and it's very very convenient that their theology is always uh, enriching themselves just like it's very convenient for the ceo of victoria's secret i'm so sorry no no Hey, I was raised in, you know, I was a teen and in my early 20s in the Victoria's Secret reign. Like it, I will say like it affected me so, like, so I am right there with you with, it's the greatest analogy that, you know, you, you look at, we reward the, the, the outside of things. We reward the way things look culturally. And so again, if the church has a rainbow flag outside, we can drive by and ignore what's happening happening inside. If people post the black square on Instagram, we can ignore that they actually have terrible policies that exploit, you know, BIPOC labor, right? We we can ignore that because it looks pretty. And and that's the part that we need to get inside. And we need to stop just taking things at face value and asking what's really going on inside behind the rainbow door, because that's not enough. Are there some suggestions? What do you think? Because I am so pleasantly surprised that even though we're completely different fields, theology and, and uh, like the, 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 the sober field, the sober, that's, what is that? <laughs> yeah, like the recovery advocacy. Recovery advocacy and MLM, right? Different, different, completely different uh, departments, if you will, completely the same at the same time. So what do you think are some great ways that we can move forward to move a- away from this at least a little bit? I think what any person can do, the most powerful thing any person can do is recognize that they may not be right. And that's the hardest thing to do because again, In an MLM, while I was drinking, I I can think of lots of things that I was trying to convince myself that I was right and other people were wrong. That, and if I had just like left one percent, that you know what, I'm probably right. But if I'm not, where would I get information to inform me? Right. So that's that can be enough. Just that little crack of gosh, what if I'm not a hundred percent right about this? Then, then, then it would be okay to look at the information. And if I'm still right, cool. But if I'm not, I think that's scary to do when you've been preaching something for so many years. So allowing yourself the possibility that you're not 100% right is, I think, the most powerful thing any person can do. And so scary, but such a good global attitude that we ought to teach our children. Like, hey... I know you think you're smart. I know you're probably smart. But I like that attitude already. 1%. What if 1% is wrong? Which is like a snowball effect, the moment that you realize, wow, that was incorrect. And now I have to 
deal with that. That sucks, <laughs> right? That's not a nice feeling, but it does make you question more things genuinely versus the the showy, like genuine question, like, okay, what if I'm wrong? What does that mean? Yeah. Using personal agency, it, it's empowering too. Like I, I can still have these beliefs and allow debate, allow questions and still feel strong about my own beliefs. Like you can still do that, but we don't want to do that because we don't want to entertain the fact that we might be wrong when that's, it's a really, it's a really powerful thing. And, and I say that with the caveat of, you know, trust, have trust also in experts. <laughs> Just just be careful of who you consider an expert, right? Because you could go the fully other way where you're like, well, I'm going to question everything. And now I don't believe you. I don't believe you. I'm skeptical of everything, which it's fine to be skeptical, but just look at where you're getting your information, right? I think that's in this day and age of misinformation. That's also very important. So use personal agency. You're not always right, but neither is like some random person making a YouTube video with no vetting and no you know clinical data to support it. Like just use your brain. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh no. Like I hear you. I feel like the YouTube industry is an MLM scheme in and of itself because we are the product, so we still pay by watching things and all those YouTubers tell us how we can become better YouTubers and there's only a small percentage that's actually making it and ultimately YouTube makes most money. Different story. Anyway, you were saying a little bit earlier that the moment you one big driver for you to start like doubting yourself was when you became uh, sober. So are you are you saying that you just had some sort of a buzz that were was making you unable to differentiate, okay, like right now I'm pushing too hard and I should probably back off. Was that filter completely gone? Yeah, I mean, it for sure, like it took my intuition completely online. Like I said, offline. I mean, it. it I said things and did things that I, I would not have done had I been clear headed. So how was that? How was that journey for you of becoming sober? Uh, yeah, I mean, I had a very rock bottom sobriety story. You know, I had the DUI, health problems, hospital, all the things, and you know, ended up in a. So like, I was the person who had to stop. Um, and it's, you know, when you, when you come to this place where you're like, I was working on the 12 steps and I was making my amends, realizing that a lot of the amends I had were, were in the MLM were things I had said, things I had done. And, and so part of me wanted to like write those wrongs and be, you know, the good boss babe and like do try and do things right. <laughs> so, you know, that, that was hard. It was hard figuring out my place, figuring out how I could correct those things while still focusing on my own recovery. But that was the layer. That was the first layer of realizing that I was in a system that was harmful. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 And of course it was like anybody, usually it's people question it well before it happens. You know, I had been asking for years, am I an alcoholic? Do I have a problem? But I would always say, Oh, this hasn't happened yet. This hasn't happened yet. This hasn't happened yet. And then all those things happened. So I knew, I knew eventually I would have to stop. I just, I wasn't ready to make the decision myself and it happened the way it needed to, I guess. Nobody was hurt. Nobody was harmed other, you know, that, that couldn't be repaired, I guess. Yeah. So you had that step. I, I always see that in movies at AA that you have to make amends. And, and you're saying most of those were in the MLM industry. 
A lot of them were, a lot of them. And they might've been little things, you know, like I added one more thing to your order or like I bugged you or I sent cold messages or, and, and some of them were just amends to myself, like sent copy and pasting scripts that just, I didn't feel comfortable with, you know, things that were just out of alignment with, with myself. It was more, there were apologies to people for sure in the MLM, but it was a lot of just me recognizing my part in it. Um, yeah, that was hard. Speaking about that recovery space, that is another statement that you've brought to the table. What was that? Uh, yes. So being a female in the recovery space has made me face more scrutiny. And I, and what I mean by that is, is I have faced more scrutiny than a man in the recovery. Yes. Yes. And when you say recovery space, you don't mean as a helper, but as a person that needs help, right? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So can you tell me a little bit more about that? I found, I personally looked at some reports and I was blown away with stigma of women and drug use. So my, my research was mostly on drug use. However, I was still blown away with like, what the fuck? Why, why, why is it when a man searches for help is like, ah, you know, we all do bad things. But when a woman looks for help, it's like, how could you? Your children. And I was like, what the fuck? I know. It, and it's, there's, of course, still like the division of labor in the United States still totally skewed. You know, the mom is usually the one who takes the mental load, right? And, and so if a man and a woman in a relationship and they have children, if the man goes to rehab, he gets to go... <laughs> turn off, like he gets leave from work. He gets like, he gets to recover more easily than the woman who has to still think about all the shit. Right. So there's that, there's that the path to recovery is more difficult. There's also, you know, women are, are more vulnerable to addiction because just the way, like the, the amount of water in our bodies, all these reasons. And so like, drinking like the boys is not something you want to do. Like that's not <laughs> something that, that that's not like, don't, don't do that. Um, so there are more women struggling alone with addiction and because it's rewarded like, Oh, moms need to drink moms. And, and, and so there is this stigma. And yet if you seek recovery, you are, you're a bad mom, but, but the man is just, he's just a man. He's not a dad. He's a man, even if they both have kids. So there's, there's that whole mind fuck. Right. And then there is as a person who is in the recovery space as like an advocate and runs a, a company, you know, I have received so much pushback where I, I have not seen the same in organizations run by men. Um, you know, an organ recovery organizations, all of them generate a revenue. Um, doesn't mean they generate a profit. I always like to put that out. Like I'm not a nonprofit, but I also don't have a profit. Um, you know, it goes into it, company communities need revenue to keep them going. You know, in AA, I put a couple bucks in the basket every time I went and it didn't matter how many times I went, they all need revenue. And the pushback I have received from, oh, well, you're just a a woman who's like scamming other women. I've never heard the same said for a man who has an AA chapter and he's passing a basket around, right? Um, the scrutiny is is much higher I've seen. And, and just the financial piece alone is 
it, men are um, allowed to, you know, look at like the oligarchies out there, the Jeff Bezos and the Elon Musk, and, and it's okay for men to be billionaires, but women are like backstabbing bitches if they're making money. Like I, I've just seen so many, it, that's not specific to recovery, but it's just in general, uh, women are, it's like, we're not allowed to make as much money as men for some reason. And, and I, I hate that. Like I, I hate that. <laughs> and I think you know to, to bring it full circle, like that's one reason women fall for MLMs because it's sold as like, you can make, be your own boss, babe, and make your own money. And the only person you're making money for is the man CEO of the company. It's just, it's, it's a total mind fuck. You can make a lot, but never more than that white guy. Mm-hmm. No, and I can, I can affirm this from experience. Becoming a woman, <laughs> how doors have been shut down. Not, and I, I want to highlight not just because of queerness. So when I'm completely dolled up and walk outside and absolutely pass, the doors that are closed all of a sudden, it it's fascinating. I was not ready for it. Um, I think there is a big name that talks about this a lot. I think her name is Paula Williams. Who, who describes that story from, okay, this is weird. Like the moment I stepped down as a pastor, now if I want to get back into pastorship, 99% of doors are closed because of queerness. And of, of that, there's also a big percentage closed because of womanhood. So I can totally, from experience of, of, of the big shock of that I saw, wow, I was not able to see that before. And now I see it. I'm like, oh my, everything. It is so easy to take it for granted, the privilege that we live with. How how can we how can we make it more easier, more accessible? Let's not use the word easy for recovery. How do you think can we make it more accessible for women to to first acknowledge, oh, okay, so four glasses of wine every evening is is not is not a good idea to <laughs> to saying, okay, I think I need some help. Yeah. I think normalizing not drinking at things for anyone, whether you're a drinker or a non-drinker or whatever. Um, you know, if you have an afternoon play date with your kids, do you have to have wine there? Just something to think about. Doesn't mean you're saying you have a problem, but what if one of your friends does? Um, you know, not not making it a default everywhere you go. Um, having non-alcoholic beverages if you host a party so that people who don't want to drink for whatever reason can enjoy their party too. And, and then not asking questions <laughs> if, if they're not welcomed. Now, I'm happy to talk about my recovery story with anybody. I'm an open book. People know that. But if someone says, oh, can I get a water? Say yes. Like, yes, let me get you one. Don't say, are you on antibiotics? Are you pregnant? Are you sick? Are well, you <laughs> seriously? Oof, like that's bizarre. Don't put someone on the spot like that. You would never say that to someone in any other setting. So just think about that kind of stuff. Like, uh, you know, how can I make this more inclusive of, of everybody else, and and not take it as like a personal insult, right? Like, oh, like somehow it says something about me because I want a glass of wine and you can't have one. Like, go for it. Have your glass of wine, but also let me, let me have something. Yeah. Yeah. I like, I like that thinking about 
defaulting to not asking questions and defaulting to having more more of a variety like it's it's so common to just text your your friends and say you want to go out for drinks like as if the drinks is the social aspect versus the us just getting together wherever yeah and you're right i mean play dates are excellent moments to decompress and say oh my everything my child ate a diaper i don't know right (laughs) (laughs) i have stories i hear you i get it i get it but like let's give each other the support we need so that we don't feel like we need the glass of wine you know we don't need to join the mlm we get the, the help we need we get the support we need like working on being more of a village and not, not to give women more unpaid labor, but, you know, asking ourselves what we need. Like when I'm reaching for this glass of wine, what do I actually need? When I'm wanting to join this pyramid scheme, what do I really need? I think just asking ourselves what we really need is can go really far. That is awesome. Yes. Hey, and what is, uh, what, what is your, uh, what is your next book about? You're saying you're writing a novel? I'm, I'm still figuring it out. Yes, I'm writing a novel. So TBA, like (laughs) more to come. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, it's been fun though. Yes, you you were just thinking it's time to move away from nonfiction. Yeah, you know, I, well, it's funny because I I thought, you know, I'm sick of writing about myself. I'm sick sick of talking about myself. But what I found in writing fiction is that I'm talking about all the things that I couldn't talk about in the nonfiction (laughs) So it's like you get to work through a lot of stuff through, you know, fake characters and fake scenarios. It's it's cool. So we'll we'll see what comes of it. Yes, Becca, yeah. this is not. It, it sounds like it's about you. It's not. Believe me, trust me. <laughs> do you also have a? Do you also have a fake MLM conglomerate in your fiction? I I might. I might. We'll see. This is this is a good idea. We can create a, an entire world with a couple of competing MLMs and then That's a right. theological structure that is built on the patriarchy <laughs> and then the 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 protagonist is dismantling it. I love I would read it. Yeah, good. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> well, thank you so so much for sharing all your wisdom with us. It's so appreciated. Of course. Yeah, I'm glad you invited me and Uh, yeah great to talk to you this has been the models we live by podcast i want to thank you all for listening and it would be great if you can give me a follow on tiktok or instagram my username is at mishvanessen on both platforms the music is by agst and the song is called flaw go listen to their music until then (laughs) 